You know, Peter was a pastor. And that word pastor, it means shepherd. He had a shepherd's heart for the flock of God. You remember there by the Sea of Galilee when Peter was recommissioned? Jesus told his defeated disciple, he said, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. In other words, be a shepherd. And to that calling, Peter remained faithful for the rest of his life. In fact, that's what he's doing here in his two letters to the church. You know, as shepherds do, he's feeding and he's warning his flock. First Peter dealt primarily with persecution, with suffering. Whereas Peter's second letter deals with false teachers. The church is attacked from both outside and from inside. Peter doesn't want us to deny the Lord as he did. He wants us to build a strong faith and be a faithful, determined witness, even in the midst of danger. Chapter 1 begins, Simon Peter, a bondservant, literally, a love slave. Peter served the Lord Jesus out of love, not out of obligation, but out of adoration. And he was an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now realize that faith alone is worthless. Faith is only as good as its object. You know, people of all religions, they believe in their gods, but believing doesn't make it so. You can believe a lie. Our faith proves precious because it's in the righteousness of Jesus. Our faith proves precious because its object is sure and certain. Jesus has achieved for us a right standing with God, and he passes it on to those who trust in him. And notice too here, Jesus is referred to as both God and Savior. Once I had a Muslim lady, she approached me on a Sunday morning after the service, and she remarked, she said, Pastor Sandy, I really enjoyed what you had to say about God, but I got confused when you mentioned Jesus. You talked about him as if he were God. And she was right. She was accurate in her perception. I told her that's because Jesus is God. He's God incarnate or God incarnate in the flesh. The deity of Christ is what sets Jesus apart from all other religious leaders. Jesus was not simply a rabbi or a prophet or a holy man. It's not even enough to call Jesus the greatest man who ever lived. Jesus was more than a man. Jesus Christ, Peter tells us, was God and Savior. And then he greets them. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us all things, all these blessings that Paul talked about in Ephesians that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. All that produces a satisfied life that enables God-pleasing conduct is ours in Christ Jesus. See, Jesus is the key. He's the key that unlocks the presence and the peace and the power of God in our lives. If life were a treasure map, Jesus would be the X that marked the spot. Reminds me of Jeff Ferrara. Jeff was reconciling his checkbook one day when he called the First National Bank of Chicago to verify his balance. The electronic voice announced, You have a balance 
of $924,844,204.32. Wow. Jeff Ferrara was one of 826 customers who had become instant millionaires due to a computer error. Of course, none of the 824 six folks were allowed to keep the money. Yet in Christ, we have become instant billionaires, and not because of a glitch, but because of grace. Your account gets credited with the righteousness of Jesus. Your merit, his merit, is attributed to you. You are now entitled to all that Jesus Christ has earned and accomplished. And so verse 4, by which we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. God's grace has given, has prompted these great and precious promises. Have you noticed Peter's preoccupation with this word precious? It's one of his favorite words, especially in things pertaining to God. He speaks of our precious faith and precious promises and the precious blood of Jesus and the precious cornerstone. The blessings of God were precious to Peter. They were his treasure. And notice it's through these precious promises that we become, and I quote, partakers of the divine nature. Hey, when you come to Christ, God implants in you his nature. His Holy Spirit writes God's law on your heart. You could say God's desires, his intents are downloaded into your basic nature through the Holy Spirit. He installs a love for him and a love for others onto your spiritual hard drive. This is what enables us to, and I quote, escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. The wickedness and the lust and the violence of society is a direct result of people not having all that they want. They're driven to evil by this craving, this lust for what they don't have. The hunger for increased pleasure and for more things is what fuels their drive, their desire for the forbidden fruit. We escape the clutches of this kind of lustful living only when we're filled with the joy and the peace that Jesus brings when that hunger gets quenched. When we have more than enough in Christ Jesus, then we can rejoice and be content in him. And then verse 5 tells us, but also, for this very reason, giving all diligence. Notice this. Add to your faith virtue. Now, all of God's blessings are received by faith and faith alone. But you see, faith needs to be fed. It needs to be fortified for it to become strong. And this is why we need to add to our faith those qualities that will help it focus and that will keep it pure and that will enable it to grow. And this is what Peter tells us to do. He says, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, add knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, add brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we're saved by faith alone, but faith needs to be propped up. It needs to be nourished and protected in order for it to grow. When you grow tomatoes, you know how you do this. You tie them to stakes. You tie the stalks up to tomato stakes to support them and to sort of guide their growth. 
you know, those tomatoes will get big and heavy. And on their own, those stalks aren't strong enough to stand up on their own. And they need the help of those stakes. And here Peter lists seven stakes that will support the growth of our faith. We need to tie our faith to virtue and to knowledge and to self-control and to endurance and to godliness or a love for godly things and to brotherly kindness and to love. We tie our faith to these things and it enables our faith to grow stronger and stronger and stronger. And then read verse 9. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. I heard a great definition of the word nostalgia. It's remembering the pleasures of sitting in front of the fire without remembering who had to cut the wood. That's nostalgia. And you know, we can get so used to the blessings that are ours in Christ that we forget what our life was like before we had them. You know, there are two truths that I should always keep in mind. One is who I am in Christ. But then two, who I would be without him. I think the best motivation to add to our life what will build a strong faith is the recognition that a weak faith might lead me to falling away. I need to avoid that at all costs. He goes on and he says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent. To make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. I mean, the more you add virtue and the light to your faith, the least likely you'll be to stumble. He says, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And boy, rather than stumble and bumble into the kingdom, wouldn't you prefer an abundant entrance? Thus, add to your faith these things that will make it strong. Notice the words here in verse 10. He says, to make your calling and election sure. (laughs) That's a strange sounding phrase. Think about it. A calling implies that we did nothing to initiate the call. That God calls, we just answered. Election implies that we're chosen, not that we choose. So how do you make certain something you had nothing to do with the first place? Here's another example of the Bible's mysterious blending of our free will and yet God's predestination. God chose you, but you also had to choose God. And you chose God by faith. Therefore, to make your salvation sure and certain, you need to continue in that growing faith. And you do that by adding to your faith That which will support it, virtue and brotherly kindness and love and so forth, that's what builds a strong faith that will never falter. Verse 12, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Now remember, Peter is a pastor, and this is a pastor's job to remind us week in and week out of God's truth. Hey, we live in fallen flesh, these bodies. We live in a fallen world. And our tendency is to forget. And I've discovered the older you get, the more that's your tendency. I'm always forgetting things these days. In a temporal world, even eternal truth can grow fuzzy and be forgotten. 
And that's why when it comes to church, we need the pastor to twist the lens week in and week out and bring the spiritual realities back into focus. That's my job. Peter writes in verse 13, yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent. As long as he's in this tent, as long as he's here on this earth, he's going to continue to remind the church, continue to focus the church in on those truths that are eternal. Notice, notice his imagery, as long as I am in this tent. He refers to his physical body as a tent in contrast to a house. You see, a tent is temporary. Our earthly bodies are like a tent. We're like a pop-up camper. We pop up for a time, but then we get folded up and put away. We're all here today and gone tomorrow. And so while Peter has the opportunity, he considers it his duty to remind the church of spiritual truths. He says, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Rosalind Aronson, she has a wonderful piece that she's entitled, Oh, Mr. Tentmaker. Here's a portion for you. It was nice living in this tent when it was strong and secure. But Mr. Tentmaker, it's scary now. My tent is acting like it's not going to hold together. The poles seem weak and the canvas has a rip. It's scary in here, Mr. Tentmaker. Why did you give me such a flimsy tent? The tent maker replies, as the creator and provider of tents, I know all about you and your tent, and I love you. I made a tent for myself once. It too was vulnerable, and attackers ripped it to pieces while I was still in it. But you'll be glad to know they couldn't hurt me. The experience now prepares me to live in your tent with you if you invite me. You'll learn as we dwell together that real security comes from me being in your tent with you. When storms come, I'll hold you. Someday your tent will collapse, for it's only for temporary use. And when it does, you and I will leave together, and I promise not to leave you before you do. Our bodies are but a tent. We wait for the heavenly model. Verse 15, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. And this is why it was so important that Peter put his reminders down in ink and on parchment. You know, most Bible scholars believe that Mark's gospel was actually the recollections of Peter. Mark was Peter's disciple and no doubt a primary source of his information. It was a good thing that Peter wrote down these things that he was testifying to. He says, For we do not follow cunningly devised fables, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we didn't make up this gospel that we preach. This is not some orchestrated ruse or hoax. Peter speaks for all the gospel writers in insisting that he simply reported and recorded what he saw, what he heard. He goes on to say, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And here he's referring to that experience he had in Matthew chapter 17 on top of Mount Hermon. When Jesus appeared to him in all of his glory, to Peter, James, and John, those three men, they saw his majesty. 
There on the mountain, they saw up close and personal the glory of God radiating through the Son of God. It was as if God peeled back Jesus' humanity and allowed his deity to shine through. It was a moment that Peter never forgot. And it wasn't just what he saw that day. It's what he heard on the mountaintop. Verse 17. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. It wasn't just Peter. It was we heard all three men, Peter, James, and John. They all verified it. They all heard the heavenly voice. God himself audibly identified his son Jesus and testified of his sinless life. In Jesus, the Father is well pleased. Now, there are two great apologetic proofs for the claims of Christ. First are the eyewitness accounts. And never forget, the gospel writers all suffered for the truths that they recorded. Hey, if they got rich off the story, then we might assume they had a motive to lie. But it's hard to imagine men martyred for what they knew to be a deception. These men were speaking of things that they had seen with their own eyes. And then the second great proof of Jesus' claims were the fulfilled prophecies. Over 300 Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus' first coming. Details relating to where and when and how and why Messiah would come. They were all amazingly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And this is Peter's next point, verse 19. He says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I mean, prior to our seeing Jesus, we rest in God's word and God's promises. He says about God's word, he says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. Oh, so often we hear folks say, well, the Bible, it has a different meaning for different people. I mean, you interpret the Bible your way, and I'll interpret the Bible my way, but not so. Here, Peter says the Bible is of no private interpretation. That means that there is an objective understanding of Scripture. It's not what you think it means, and quite frankly, it's not what I think it means. It's what God intended for it to mean, and that meaning applies to us all. The Bible is universal truth. And through the Holy Spirit, we can read it and understand it. Verse 21, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Here we, we, we learn how the Bible was transmitted from God to man. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And here's the genius of the Bible. Human authors pen the message so that it comes across in human vernacular that we can understand, and yet it still reflects the words and wisdom of God. Those authors wrote only as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit captured John's mind, and Peter's mind, and Paul's mind, Luke's mind, and they moved through their personality. They moved through their vocabulary. They used these men and all that they were 
The Holy Spirit used them in order to get down on the page exactly what he intended. The end result is a book, our Bible, that relates to the human mind, but it also reveals the mind of God. The Bible is God's authoritative word, but there are people who dare to twist and to cloud God's word. And Peter warns us about these folks in chapter 2. He says, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. Oh, holy men, we're moved by the Holy Spirit to bring us God's word. But likewise, there are unholy men who are moved by unholy spirits, like, breed, like pride and like lust and like greed and like fame and like Satan. Unholy spirits that move upon them to distort God's word. Beware of false teachers and destructive heresies. They want to twist the truth, even to the point of denying the Lord who bought them. Take the Mormons, for example. Well, they support biblical morality, and they promote family values. Most Mormons are respectable folks. You want Mormons to move in next door. They make nice neighbors. There's only one problem. They've denied the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. They deny his deity and his atonement for our sins. They've got it wrong when it comes to Jesus. And these are the most dangerous types of false teachers. Sweet people with poisonous doctrine. Good folks on the periphery, that is. But dead wrong on the central issue of Jesus Christ and his deity. These are the folks that are sending millions of people to hell. Peter comments on the popularity of these false teachers. He says, And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Notice, many will follow. In the last 50 years, Jehovah's Witnesses have grown from 100,000 to 7.5 million. Mormons have gone from a million in 1957 to 15 million in 2013. And those are just two of countless forms of spiritual deception. Many will follow indeed. Peter explains in verse 3, By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. You know, there are people out there that long for a following. Their ministry is energized by their ego. They become greedy for gain. And they'll twist the truth in order to appeal to larger and larger crowds. They want more and more numbers. That equates to more money. That equates to more for them. Peter says, for a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. Judgment will come to these spiritual deceivers. And in the next several verses, Peter gives three examples of how God will judge these wicked false teachers. He says, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Now, here's the first example of God's judgment, the flood of Noah's day. You remember what prompted the flood? 
A lot of times we, we kind of simplify things by saying, well, the wickedness of mankind. And that's true, but there was more to the story. The destruction was necessitated by an angelic apostasy or a falling away. Jude chapter 6 tells us that the angels at the time did not keep their proper domain. Some Bible scholars believe that the demons crossed the God-imposed boundary between celestial and terrestrial, between angelic and human. They took human bodies and they had intercourse with the daughters of men. This resulted in a perversion of the human race and thus the severity of the judgment. God had to literally purify a polluted gene pool. And according to Peter, God took these demons that were involved in this and chained them in the very darkest parts of hell. The Greek word here translated hell is Tartarus. This is the only place in the New Testament this word gets mentioned. Apparently, God created a special holding cell for these vile demons who vexed and perverted humanity and caused the necessity of wiping out the human race and starting over with the family of Noah. Another example of God's judgment takes place later in Genesis. And God turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes Condemned them, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. You know Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom was notorious for its sexual perversions and for its rampant homosexuality. But that was only part of the reason that God torched the city of Sodom. In Ezekiel chapter 16 and in verse 49, we find an interesting verse that tells us much more about Sodom. It says, look, this was the iniquity of Sodom. Here was her sin. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And I think that's an important verse because sometimes when we think of Sodom, we can get haughty. We can get a little self-righteous and we can think that, oh, we're above the sin of Sodom. But wait a minute. Let's backtrack here. It wasn't just the homosexuality and the sexual perversion. Realize God judged Sodom for other reasons as well. She was proud. Know anybody who's pride, prideful? She was selfish. She was apathetic toward the things of God. She was uncharitable. These are sins that we're more familiar with, aren't we? At least I am. Oh, God judged Sodom. But it was not just for the homosexuality, it was for her selfishness and her unwillingness to give to the poor and help others. And Peter reminds us, he delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Lot was righteous by faith. Lot knew God, but apparently he tried his best to cozy up to the men and the values of Sodom. Lot wanted to follow God, but his close associations with Sodom made him a miserable man. You know, Lot was a sad, sad person. And he kind of represents the plight of some Christians who refuse to separate themselves from the influences of the world who want to live for God, but they also want to cozy up to the things of the world. They also want to live in harmony with the world. Such a person ends up oppressed and tormented. 
Lot was a backslidden believer, you could say. I I like this definition of Lot. He had enough of the Lord not to be happy in the world, but he had enough of the world not to be happy in the Lord. Know anybody like that? Lot was the classic fence straddler. You remember what Jesus said to such people? He said, you need to either be hot or cold, not lukewarm. He goes, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Verse 9 tells us that Sodom proved that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. In other words, God knows how to judge people who snub the clear commands of Scripture and refuse to submit. He knows how to judge those people. The story also proves that God also knows how to to deliver the righteous. Those like Lot, even with those who have feeble faith, yet still have faith, God knows how to deliver them. He delivered Lot. The citizens of Sodom, they had renamed sexual perversions as alternative lifestyles. They thought that by renaming their sin, they could avoid its judgment. Peter says of them, they are presumptuous and self-willed. You know, the people of Sodom, they learned the hard way that God doesn't update his morality. Did you know this? God doesn't update, doesn't come out with morality 2.0 or 3.0. His truths are timeless, and he enforces his authority as well. Notice how the arrogant Sodomites, we're we're told, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. In other words, these people, they had no respect of authority for authority of any kind, let alone God's. Verse 11 tells us, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Peter is saying that even angels respect the authorities that God establishes. Men alone, evil men, are arrogant enough to buck God's chain of command. They have no regard for God's authority. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand. And here, my friends, is modern society in a nutshell. We don't respect the authorities that God has established. The principles that he's put in place across our society. There's no more regard to the way God, God's order and God's structure for life. For one, we've tossed out male authority in the home and in the church. We've defied God's plan for the sexes and his definitions of gender. We've scoffed at God's authority over sexual relations. We've mocked God's authority over government. We've turned a deaf ear to God's morality. We've ignored God's order without realizing that his will is for our protection and for our betterment. And there are negative consequences if we disobey. You know, we're like brute beasts who run roughshod over matters that we don't really understand. God in his wisdom has put these things in place to protect us. And we dare ignore them. And then verse 12, he says, And will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. (laughs) 
Folks who carouse in the daytime are people with no shame. That's one thing to sin in seclusion under the cover of darkness. It's another thing to sin openly and publicly with no squint of conscience. This was the case in Sodom. It was gay gay pride day all the time. Peter says of the conscienceless society, he says, They are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. Here's the sad thing. This kind of mentality had infiltrated the church. This distaste and uh, disdain for authority had even infiltrated the church. His readers had accepted the false teachers as part of the Christian family. And he says, this has created a spot or a blemish on your worship. It was as if they were worshiping God now with a tainted sacrifice. In in essence, there had been guilt by association. They had become tainted by these false teachers that they had entertained. Verse 14, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. These were these false teachers. They had come into the church and, and they were enticing. You know, you don't let a rabid dog into your backyard with your kids. You do that and somebody's going to get hurt. Neither do you tolerate a false teacher in the church. A deceiver, he knows who's most vulnerable. She preys on the weakest of the saints. That's why we need to be warned and be on guard. And we're told they have a heart trained in covetous practices. Oh my. False teachers are skilled manipulators. They play on emotions They use circular reasoning. They employ familiar phrases while redefining the terms. You know, talk to a Mormon missionary. And you can be using the same terms, and yet you get the impression very quickly that your definition of those terms is much different than his definition. They redefine the terms. These people take verses out of context to sort of nicely fit into their argument. They're shrewd. They're called accursed children, verse 15. And they have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Uh, You remember Balaam. God warned Balaam not to go and curse the Israelites, but the king of Moab, he kept upping the ante. He kept raising his offer. He kept bribing the soothsayer with his riches. And it was greed that finally pushed Balaam to disobey God and to go with the messengers of the king. We're told, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. God used a donkey to speak to Balaam. And the same phenomena occurs every Sunday here at Calvary Chapel. God uses a dumb donkey to speak to his people. God rebuked Balaam through the donkey. You know, Balaam's story reminds me of the businessman who offered his accountant $100,000 to doctor the books. The accountant agreed. Well, after the the agreement, then the businessman, he came back to the accountant and he said, I've changed my mind. I'm going to give you one penny. Well, the accountant was upset. What do you mean one penny? What do you think I am, a thief? 
The businessman replied, he says, well, I've already established that. All that's undecided is your price. It's been said every man has a price. But I hope that's not true. I hope there are some men who stand on principle and refuse to succumb to greed. The false teacher sells out the truth for material gain, but the true man of God will remain faithful. Verse 17, these are wells without water. Isn't that a vivid description? Empty wells. It's been said empty barrels make the most noise. False teachers specialize in proclaiming empty promises. Their mouths are full of words that carry no weight. He compares them to clouds carried by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. The false teachers are like clouds that just sort of pass off into oblivion. Verse 18. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. Realize there's always a waiting audience for anyone who will provide a religious justification for a person's lusts and greed. People get lured by the notion that they can please God and get rich simultaneously. That they can please God and satisfy their lusts simultaneously. That's an appealing thing that the false teacher uses. This is spirituality without morality. This is believing without behaving. And, and to a large degree, this is what the church is stooped to today. There's this desire to be spiritual. No one just wants to be moral, put it into practice. This is appealing to people. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. In other words, here's the preacher who trumpets the evils of sin and adultery, all the while he's carrying on an affair with the church secretary. Or he has this secret life on the internet. He promises freedom, but he's caught in the web. Some teachers who promise the secrets of victory, they have secrets all right. Secret lives of sin and of bondage. He says, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. You got to know the saddest man on the planet is the one who has tasted the joys of Jesus and then walked away. Where do you go? After you've experienced the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. That person can never really enjoy his sin because he knows how it pales in comparison to the blessings that are in Christ. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. It would have been better if they had not even known the ways of God than to having known it, to have rejected it. It's pretty heavy. It's like the prisoner whose sentence is commuted, but he's out on his own and he's lazy and he's lost. 
And so he returns to the prison just because life is easier there. At least in jail, he's got a bed. He's got three hot meals. Hey, Jesus sets us free from sin, but some Christians are just too lazy to add to their faith virtue and self-control and endurance. Those things that will make that faith grow stronger, and thus they fall right back into the very mess from which they were delivered. It's sad. I've met Christians who sob and bemoan the spiritual shackles that hold them back. But if the truth were really known, they're not free only because they don't want to be. At least not enough to do what it takes to strengthen their faith. They're too used to the slop to climb out of it. They just don't want to change. You know, that's a lot of people's problem. It's not that they can't change. It's that they just don't want to change. It sounds strange, but people can cultivate a taste for spam to the point that they would rather have spam than steak. They can. It's insane, but but people can cultivate that kind of taste for things. Well, chapter 3 tells us, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your, mind, your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. You know, it's said repetition is the best teacher, and Peter believed that. In fact, Jesus also would agree. And here he says that he's writing to them to remind them to repeat the truths that they're familiar with. Peter writes, knowing this first, That scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Ah, you Christians, you're just a bunch of alarmists. You're always talking about the end of the world, the final judgment, the second coming of Jesus. Well, we're waiting. They say, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, here's a theory that, goes, that today goes by the name uniformitarianism. It was first espoused by a man named Charles Lyell, an English geologist who lived in the 1800s. In fact, Lyell's doctrine became the foundation for Darwinian evolution. And it is actually the dominant view of, societies to, of, of scientists today. It's interesting that Peter predicted it 1,500 years ago, or 1,950 years ago. Simply put, uniformitarianism is the belief that the earth has been shaped throughout history by the same natural laws and processes that are at work today. That nothing cataclysmic or catastrophic has occurred. A uniformitarian would sit on the edge of the Grand Canyon, would look down at that slender blue thread called the Colorado River, five miles below, and claimed that it was that tiny river that cut out that giant canyon. That the same processes that are working today can explain the world that we live in. That given enough time, anything is possible. The uniformitarian says that the Grand Canyon formed the same ways that gullies form in your backyard through simple erosion. Well, I'm sorry, but I'm not that gullyable. And neither is Peter, for he points out what they've left out. Verse 5, 
He says, for this they willfully forget. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old. And the earth standing out of the water and in the water. By which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. The historical event that most modern scientists omit from their thinking is that God flooded this world with water. That the earth was once deluged with a global flood. Have you ever heard the top 10 statements made by Noah on the ark? You ever heard these? Here are the top 10 statements made by Noah on the ark. Number 10, strange, we haven't seen another boat for weeks. You can laugh just out of a courtesy if if you like. Number nine, if only I'd brought along more rhino litter. Number eight, I'll never sleep in a waterbed again. Number seven, fish for supper again. Number six, does anyone have more Dramamine? Five, what? You don't have film to photograph the rainbow? That, that's uh, before we had digital cameras. Number four, honey, please stop saying into each life a little rain must fall. <laughs> Number three, how can I fish with just two worms? Number two, God, are you sure I don't need to keep the termites in a tin can? And number one, Noah's on the deck of the ark. He's slapping his neck and he's mumbling, I should have killed those lousy mosquitoes while I had a chance. Actually, a catastrophic global flood is a far better explanation for the earth's geology than is natural processes over millions and millions of years. For one thing, fossils don't form over time. Fossils don't form over millions of years. I mean, a bird falls to the ground and it either decomposes or the scavengers come and eat it. But the fossil of that bird forms when intense pressure follows the bird's immediate compaction. That's the type of scenario caused by a flood. Understand the biblical flood, it isn't ignored because it lacks scientific credence. It it has much evidence to verify it. Peter says it's been willfully forgotten. Notice that. Haughty, arrogant men can't admit that there was a flood, that this earth was once flooded, or they would validate the judgment of God. They're too arrogant for that. They've chosen instead to deny any evidence for God in his judgment and pretend to be their own authority. He says, but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Hey, admit that God judged the earth in the past and you have to concede that he can do it again. And this scares wicked men and rightly so. But instead of admitting their sin and confessing their sin, they stick their head in the sand and they live in a state of denial. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. And again, he's going back. You you know, you keep saying the Lord's coming back. The Lord's coming back. And where is the promise of his coming? He says, but beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Well, so it's been 2,000 years since Jesus promised he would return. 
With God, time is relative. Up against eternity, a thousand years is just one day. From God's perspective, it hasn't been long. It hasn't been a long wait. In fact, Peter assures us, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is no slacker. God is not in the habit of putting off his obligations. No, he's waiting. He's waiting to judge this world because he desires for people to repent and to come to the truth of Jesus Christ and to be saved. God is waiting because of his love for people. Not because of any slackness. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now some hear in verse 10 the sound of a missile and the detonation of a nuclear warhead. But I believe that when God decides it's time to retire this physical universe, it will occur by a direct act of God. Remember in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 we're told that Jesus is upholding all things by the word of his power. Jesus is the unifying force of the universe. Jesus is the atomic glue that binds the positive charges in the nucleus of every atom. You know, that's a mystery. Like charges repel, and yet in the, in the nucleus of every atom, you have protein, protons clinging to each other. How does that work? Well, there's a glue. There's a nuclear glue that holds together everything. I believe that's Jesus. He is upholding all things by the word of his power. But one day, he's going to let go. And when he does, the universe will incinerate. The elements will melt with fervent heat, Peter says. Therefore, verse 11, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? I mean, if all this physical universe we live in is going to burn up one day, well, you certainly don't want to be a materialistic person. You want to live for stuff that's going to burn? Hey, every earthly thing is one day going to burn up. Never forget that. You know, that new car that you just dying to have, man, <laughs> it's going gonna, it's gonna to burn. It's going to be gone. Don't live your life for things that perish. Instead, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Now, here's a provocative thought. Peter says that we're to be looking for the coming of the Lord. And I can understand that. We all should have that longing for Jesus to appear at any moment. But he says something else, too. He says, in hastening, we need to be hastening the coming of the Lord. Now, that's interesting to me. How do you hasten? How do you speed up Christ's coming? Is there a way that you and I can speed up the Lord's return? I believe there is. In Romans chapter 11, verse 25, we're told that the events of the end times won't begin until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Implied is that there is a fullness. There is a set number of Gentiles who are going to be saved. Apparently, when that number is reached, the father will say to his son, go get them. 
That means every person that we lead to the Lord, we're one person closer to his return. And thus, the more we share our faith, the more we can speed up or hasten the Lord's return. Verse 13, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. When man sinned, the whole universe became subject to randomness and decay. But one day, this universe will melt with fervent heat and God will bring about a new heaven and a new earth. I long for that day. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Oh, how we long to see Jesus. But you got to remember, if he returned right now, it would cut short the opportunity for some other folks to be saved. Think about the person that you've been praying for. Yeah, we, we would love for Jesus to come back tonight. But what would that mean for them? If he'd come back a year ago, how many people we know were saved during this past year would be lost forever? We need to consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Hey, we can wait a few more days if it means a few more souls are to be saved. And then Peter continues, for as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Paul had concurred with Peter's conclusions here. And he says in verse 16, as also in all his epistles, or Paul's epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Now, I think this is kind of funny. One apostle says of another apostle that he's too complicated. Now, you've read that Paul, man. He, he's hard to understand. <laughs> A little apostolic criticism going on here, I guess. But, but you got to agree with Peter. I mean, if you've ever read Romans chapters 9 through 11, well, that's some heavy stuff. Or if you've ever read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 or 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you too might conclude with Paul or with Peter that Paul was difficult to understand. But here's the important thing. Notice Peter equates Paul's writings with the rest of the Bible. Peter affirms that Paul's writings, his letters, were inspired scripture. For he says in verse 16, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Obviously, Peter believed that Paul was part of the scriptures. Peter had no doubt that Paul's letters should be included in the sacred canon of scripture. And then we read verse 17. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand... Beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. And Peter closes here with a twofold plan for your spiritual growth, a good defense and a good offense. Hey, beware of the false teacher. Beware of falling into errors. That's the good defense. 
and then grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Add to your faith virtue and the like. That's the good offense. And there we have Peter's second letter to the church.